somebody was asking me, I got a wrap on my hand. Somebody was asking me how I injured myself. And uh, it, the story, it all started when uh, a man made a joke about my wife's hair. And if you don't get that joke, that's good for you. I'm proud of you that you don't get that. We're studying Mark chapter 12. You can see me after service. I'll explain to you how I actually hurt myself. I'm old. That's the problem. Mark chapter 12. Uh, we've been studying this for over a year, and I hope that I'm turning some of y'all into Bible nerds. Uh, if you're not, then today's message you probably won't enjoy very much. We've got to be Bible nerds today. Um, the passage, that, the, the, the topic that I want to speak to you about today is authenticating Jesus. Authenticating Jesus. Let's verify the identity of Christ. Maybe that's another way to say it. Verify. You guys realize that's increasingly important in the world that we're living in, to verify identity. Isn't that true? Like, your phone has to do it, and there's all sorts of reasons. Our challenge is that we're lazy, just as humans, we're lazy, and uh, we are always looking for mental shortcuts because we don't want to spend that energy on actually getting to know people. We'd rather spend it on playing a video game or watching a YouTube video or figuring out what we're going to eat for dinner, you know? So we we're, we're tend to be a little bit lazy, and sometimes people get on our nerves, so we'd rather not spend that time, that energy to get to know them. But I think more and more we, we need to get good at that, authenticating, uh, verifying identity, uh, especially if you're dating. How many of you are, are still, like, single? This might be a chance for you to shoot your shot, by the way. Okay, we got a handful of single people. I am glad that I'm not dating in this day and age. I am so glad for a number of reasons. Probably there's two in particular. Now, this comes from a man, and please don't judge me for saying this, okay? But one is the expertise with which women have gotten good at makeup. It is shocking. Right? The other, the other thing is just how good people have got it at cultivating their social media. You know, it's just like they present the highlights and you, you're expecting to meet a superstar and it turns out they're a totally different person who they present themselves publicly. And so we've got to get really good. Otherwise, you'll marry who you think is Rachel and you'll wake up next to Leah. <laughs> Bible nerds get that joke. We don't want that. You got to, we, we really have to invest in getting to know people going directly to the source, figuring out what the truth is. Otherwise, you're going to be sorely mistaken and sorely misled. And we don't want that. We're in a passage today. This is really a section uh, in the scriptures that is authenticating Jesus. It is validating the identity of who Christ is. And uh, this started, we're on Wednesday or Tuesday of Jesus's last week of life is what we're studying. The week started, Jesus came into town um, in Jerusalem, the capital city, the Bible says of the world, the most important city of the world. Jesus rides into town like a king. On Monday, he goes into the temple. He clears the temple out, cleans it out, cleans house, and he's walking around the temple like he owns the place. And here we are on a Wednesday, and all of the Jewish ruling elites, the authorities, they come to Jesus, and they begin to question Jesus. And what they're trying to do, they're trying to expose Jesus as a fraud. Everybody that loves Jesus, they want to turn people against Jesus, and they want to get Jesus arrested. They're, they're tired of dealing with Jesus. He's a threat to them and their authority. And so this whole thing, this, this dialogue we've been having, which is concluded in our passage today, 
It all began when these religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, they asked him a question. Mark chapter 11, verse 38, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So Jesus is answering that question. Uh, Today, we're going to see that Jesus is encouraging us to think more deeply about his true identity. Uh, Otherwise, we will be mistaken and misled. So let's all stand together. We stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I'll explain that to you, why that's important in a little bit. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, set at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd was listening to him with delight. Let's pray. Father, we come together today. Uh, We close our eyes, we bow our head, we gather around your word. We lift up your name in praise because we love you. We long for more of you. We recognize, Lord, that we can't do anything in this world without you. Uh, It's only by your grace, only by your mercy, only by your power that we live and we move and we have our being. And so first of all, Lord, we just bow before you and we surrender to you. Uh, I pray that you'll give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart that's receptive to the message that you want to give us. And Lord, I pray today we'll be empowered to put aside every preconceived notion we have about you so that we might discover your true identity. Lord, I pray that you'll bless us. Speak through me, Lord. I'm a sinner. I'm only saved by your grace. I'm no no better than any person that's in this room or any person that's watching online. They don't need anything from me, Lord. They need a word from you. And so we beg you, Lord, to speak to us. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, I'd ask that you spend a moment and silently pray for the people around you. We have several in our church family that are battling illness, battling different type of health concerns, and I ask that you'll lift them up. Just in general, ask the Lord to heal them. Ask the Lord to give them comfort and peace. Pray for what's going on in our world, the war, the division, the injustice, the poverty, that the Lord will be near to the brokenhearted, that he will... Bring about righteousness and justice upon the earth. And finally, ask the Lord to speak to you today. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And... He's turned the tables. Up to this point, he's been questioned. Uh, the last three weeks, we called the Entrapment Trilogy. Uh, the religious authorities, they came to Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They're asking him loaded questions. They're trying to get Jesus to say something stupid or something that will um, get him in trouble in some way. And so Jesus has answered all their questions perfectly to the point that nobody dares ask him any more questions. The debate is over. This is Jesus' closing statement. And this is what's beautiful about Jesus. This is Jesus' last plea to all those people that hate him and want to destroy him. This is his last plea for them to change their mind about who Jesus is. And so what he says, he says, how can the scribes, now the scribes are the biblical scholars of the day. These are the men that have the most intelligence, the most knowledge about the Bible of anybody in this area. And so Jesus goes to the top of 
the, basically the trendsetters, the ones who set the tone for what everybody else believes. So all the common people, they look to the scribes and they say the scribes have it figured out. Nobody studied the Bible more than them. So if anybody knows who God is and how God operates, it's these people. And so Jesus goes to the top. He challenges their understanding. He says, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, the word Messiah, it means promised one. It's interchangeable with the word Christ. So every time you see Christ, also think of Messiah. Uh, there are just, one's a Hebrew transliteration, one's a Greek transliteration. Same exact word. Also, whenever you think about it, uh, Messiah in Jesus' day, equate, they equated that with the term son of David. And so all these words, Jesus is saying, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? And he is not questioning that fact. What we're going to see is he is challenging their understanding of that fact. That's what we're going to see. So let me unpack, and this is where we got to be Bible nerds. First service, it was 9 a.m., the coffee hadn't kicked in, and they really glazed over during this part, okay? And it's going to feel very like Sunday school, graduate-level Bible study, okay? But please just stick with me, and I think there's a payoff, okay? There's definitely a point, but just really push through, okay? Especially you ADD people, okay? So son of David. I'm going to give you the history of this, this because this is such an important phrase for the Jewish understanding, for people in Jew- Jesus' day. You remember David was just a shepherd boy, right? In teenage, uh, he was the, the lowest son in the lowest house in the lowest tribe, okay? And uh, he's tending sheep. God speaks to him during that time through a series of events and confirms that he's going to be the next king of God's chosen people. God takes him from being a shepherd boy, leads him to the battlefield, and he takes down Goliath. You remember this story. Cuts off Goliath's head. And then he ascends to another level of authority. He ends up in the king's court. And eventually he becomes the king. Once he's the king, he goes and he faces all the enemies of God's people. And he carves out more territory for God's nation, his people. And the, the, the kingdom prospers. And they experience so much peace. And they're at the height of the kingdom. It's never been more prosperous. It's never been more peaceful. Things have never been better. And at that point, David has done all that he can do, all the enemies are defeated, everything's set right. And so he finally says to God, he says, God, I want to build a house for you. That's what he says. And what he's communicating, he wants to build a temple for God. So there's these sacred things that belong to God. And right now they're housed in a tent and they would take the tent down. They would set it up. That's not a great place to live. Nobody wants to live in a tent. And so David says, I've done all these things for you, God, and for your people. Now I want to build you a house. And so God hears his request and then God responds to David through a prophet. And this is where the term son of David originates. Okay, so 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're Bible nerds. Okay, here we go. So now, this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now let's just pause right there. This is what God's saying. What I did for you individually, personally, taking you from obscurity in the shepherd's uh, pasture, leading you to become, become the king, and then defeating all your enemies and setting you in a place of prosperity and peace. What I've done for you personally, I'm going to do for this nation corporately. And he goes on, how's that going to happen? 
Verse 11 continued. The Lord declares, the Lord himself will make a house for you. You want to build me a house, that's not going to happen. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, that means when you pass away, I will raise up for you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I'm going to build you a house and one of your descendants is always going to sit on the throne of that house. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so I'm going to build a house for you. One of your descendants is going to sit on the throne of that house and that house, that kingdom is going to rule. It's going to be established. It's going to rule forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. We're going to have a special relationship. Okay. So God promises David, you wanted to build me a house. That's not going to happen. Instead, I'm going to build you a house, and this house is going to bless the nations. It's going to have all sorts of authority and power and purpose, and there's going to be peace and prosperity, and one of your descendants will sit on the throne. And so that's what God's people are expecting. God has made this promise to David. Everybody hears the promise, and they're like, okay, this is incredible. So David has a son. His son's name is Solomon. Solomon builds a temple. And so like, okay, this is great. And, and then Solomon has sons. Uh, David's grandchildren, they rule over the people of God. And things get a little bit rocky, but this goes on for 400 years that one of David's descendants is on the throne of God's chosen people. He, they're on the throne of David's house. Uh, there's, there's a level of prosperity, a level, a level of peace. It ebbs and flows. But then about 400 years later, after God has made this promise to David, the, the, the kingdom has been divided and there's enemies that have assembled against God's people. And these, and these enemies overpower God's people, and they take the whole kingdom away. They burn the temple to the ground. Uh, the palace is turned to the, burned to the ground. The walls are, are burned to the ground. And so the people, they remember the promise that God made to David, and they're like, what in the world happened? And their heart is broken, and they start to become, become hopeless. And they think, well, maybe the plan has changed. Maybe God has failed us. Maybe God has given up on us. Well, in the midst of their darkest moment, their most hopeless moment, God reminds them he renews the promise that he made to David. Okay, I want to read this to you. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So all you people that are, you've given up hope because you had this idea of what God's plan was going to, how it's going to unfold. And it's not unfolding the way that you thought it was. And, and you, you are living in a land of darkness. How many of you have ever lived in a land of darkness? And you're like, this isn't, this isn't the way things are supposed to work out. And this is what God is saying to those people. And this is what I hope he's reminding you today. There is hope. There's a light that is dawning. Verse three, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time, as they rejoiced when dividing spoils. <clears throat> There's coming a time there's coming a time when you're going to win the victory and you're going to be able to reap the harvest and you're going to be able to celebrate all the, all, over all the spoils. Things are, things are going to get better for you have shattered their oppressive yoke, the rod on the shoulders, the staff of the oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. All the things that you're fighting now, God says to his people, all the enemies that you just can't seem to defeat, listen to me, I will defeat them on your behalf utterly destroyed to the point that we're going to take all the weapons of war and we're going to gather them up and they're going to be a bonfire for the victory parade. Okay, this sounds great. I love this promise, but where's it coming from? When's it going to happen? Here's, here's the part of the passage you know. Verse six, for a child will be born for us, 
a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so what changes, what changes the dynamic? What changes from the darkness into the light? It's not a series of events. It's a person. It's a person who is born. Who is this person? The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of who? It's David's son. It's David's son. And over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So Isaiah says these words 600 years before Jesus is born. And this is what the Israelites, God's chosen people, the Jewish race, this is what they were really good at. They heard this promise and they held on to it. Through thick and thin, they held on to it and they, they kept believing, okay, God, he repeatedly promised us this, that the son of David is going to come and he's going to make everything right. This promised one, this Messiah, this Christ. Then Jesus is born. And he's born with this pronouncement, Luke chapter 1, verse 30 and following. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of who? It's right there on the screen. You can do it. His father, David. He's David's son. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So that's the promise pronounced over Jesus at his birth. And then Jesus, 30 years later, he starts his ministry. And he's proven that he has power over disease and darkness and death. And he's healing people nobody else could heal. And he's casting out demons that nobody else could cast out. And he's walking on water, and he's calming storms. And people see all the stuff that that Jesus is doing, and they say of Jesus, Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, all the crowds were astonished, and they said, could this be who? The son of David. Is this the one we've been waiting on for a thousand years? Is this the one who's going to establish God's kingdom upon the earth? And, and, and live in dominion and bring us peace and prosperity and to defeat all of our enemies. Jesus was walking through Jericho. This is the last week of his life. And he's heading up towards Jerusalem. And there's a blind man there in Jericho. I read this story to you several months ago. There's a blind man in, in Jericho named Bartimaeus. And, and the blind man can see of Jesus what all the people with vision, they haven't been able to see clearly yet. And he cries out. As Jesus is passing by, they hear, he hears Jesus of Nazareth is coming through. And so he cries out to Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 48. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me. Who? Son of David. Son of David. You're the one. Nobody else can save me. Nobody else can fix me. But you are that one we've been waiting on. You're the promised one. You are the son of David who's going to sit on the throne. And this is what Jesus does. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, no, 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 you've got it mistaken. Instead, he heals the man. And he allows the man to walk with them on this parade up to the hill to Jerusalem. And they get to Jerusalem and they're entering into the city gates. And there's now, at this point, there's a huge procession. It's a coronation parade for a king. And Jesus is riding on a donkey and there's people walking in front of him and walking behind him. And they're all shouting out this. Look what they're shouting. Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to who? The son of David. The son of David. The one we've been waiting on. The promised one. The Messiah. The Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
And Jesus doesn't shush them. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't stop them. He doesn't say they're mistaken. He accepts their praise as their king. He accepts the title of son of David. He accepts the title of Messiah. He accepts the title of the Christ, the long-awaited king, the promised one who would make everything right. Jesus says, okay, you're not wrong. I'm the one you've been waiting on. Now, two days later, Jesus has dealt with all these religious rulers, and they don't believe this about Jesus. They don't believe it. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe Jesus is the one we've been waiting on for a thousand years because Jesus doesn't agree with the way they look at the temple. And so they think to themselves, because he doesn't view the temple the way we view the temple, then he can't be the Messiah. So they cancel him out. And so now they're trying to expose Jesus as a fraud. But Jesus shuts him up. He, he handles all the debates. And then he's, he enters into this conversation where he turns the tables and he's going to start asking them questions. And he's trying to clear up all of their erroneous, preconceived notions, all their faulty views of the Messiah. He's trying to correct them. Because for a thousand years, there have been all of these assumptions made about who this prince, this son of David, who this Christ, who this Messiah was going to be and what they were going to look like and what they were going to accomplish. There were these faulty assumptions about the role of Messiah. And so Jesus is going to clear it up because this is the vision that the common people had. They believed that when the Messiah comes, he was going to be a powerful, visionary, military ruler who was going to physically come and destroy all of Israel's enemies and make Israel God's chosen people as the most powerful nation, the ruling nation of all the world. That was their vision. And that this Messiah would establish a kingdom that would never fail and all of their needs would be met. So this was their assumption. You remember the story when Jesus fed the 5,000 on the hill. It's in John chapter six. You remember this story. And so he fed them and uh, they had five loaves and two fish and Jesus fed 5,000 people with that. And then they're all blown away that Jesus is able to do that. And they wanted to make him the king. You remember this story. I'm going to read to you what, what um, John chapter 6, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, that was their expectation. They saw this man who had unlimited power and could do unlimited things. And you're like, okay, this is obviously the guy we've been waiting on. Let's make him the king so he can defeat Rome and set us up as the great world power. This was their assumption. And so Jesus corrected. He said, no, 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 you're misguided. You don't understand it. And so Jesus goes to correct their, their misconception. Where does he go? He doesn't appeal to his own person. He doesn't say, I am the son of David. So if anybody can tell you what the son of David is supposed to do, it's me. So just listen to what happened. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, look at all the things I've accomplished. Look at all my power. Just listen to what I say. He doesn't appeal to his power. He doesn't appeal to, appeal to logic. He doesn't even appeal to emotion. Where does he go? He goes to the scriptures. He said, um, in, in Mark chapter 11, David himself says, by the Holy Spirit, verse 36. He goes to the scriptures. Because here's the truth, and this is what you need to understand. Pivotal for today. The scripture is the standard. The Bible is the standard. The Bible is the filter by which all other truth claims are measured. 
So why does Jesus appeal to the scriptures when he's correcting their faulty assumptions? It's because of what Jesus believes about the scriptures. Jesus believes that David wrote what he was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus believes that these are not just words on a page written by a man. Jesus believes that these are inspired words, that these are words coming directly from the mouth of God. Now, let me explain to you how this works, because there's a lot of misconceptions about what that means, that the Bible is inspired by God. It does not mean that God dictated the Bible. So God didn't come and sit in a room with David and say, okay, this is exactly what I want you to write. It wasn't that. It also, inspiration doesn't mean that God possessed David. David's eyes rolled back in his head, and he was just like a robot. Was that weird when my eyes did that? Sorry. Doesn't mean that. What it means is David was inspired. In his heart, he had something he wanted to write about God. His understanding of God, his experiences with God. So he sat down, and as he sat down, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit started to guide David's thoughts. As he sat down and put, put ink to pen or, or pen to paper, the Holy Spirit started to, to speak to David's inner man and guided his words and structured the sentences to the point that when David was finished, God, through David, had communicated exactly what God wanted to communicate. Not just to David, not just to David's people, but to all of us through all time. And so these, these words are not just recorded history. They are recorded history, but not just recorded history. These words are not just, they are written by men, but they're not just the words of men. These words are the infallible, inspired word of God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit to the point that these words do not fail in communicating exactly what God wants to communicate to us. And so Jesus, as he's correcting assumptions, he doesn't go to anything else. He comes to the scriptures because he says these are God's words. Everything we need to understand God and understand life and understand living, it's found right here. This is the standard. So he goes here, and he quotes from Psalm chapter 10. Psalm chapter 110, I'm sorry. 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In other words, all the people that wrote the New Testament, they looked at this as the most important psalm the most important passage from the Old Testament. Now, this is a psalm written by David in response to God's promise to David. So God comes to David through a prophet in 2 Samuel, and, and then he makes this promise, I'm going to build you a house. One of your sons is going to sit on the throne of this house, and this house is going to be a blessing to all the nations. And this is David's response to that. Now, it starts with this, what Jesus used as a quote. David says, the Lord declared to my Lord, which is a weird sentence. Lord twice, right? So what's happening here? Is God talking to God? It's kind of strange. And then also, David is writing about his future son, his great, 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 all the way down grandson. And it's kind of odd to call your grandson your Lord, right? So what's going on here? Now, we understand the scriptures. So we understand that God isn't talking to himself. Instead, the father is talking to the son. And he's talking about not just David's son, David's great-great-grandson. He's actually talking about the son of God. So it makes sense that David would call his descendant his Lord. And that's what Jesus says. He's, he says, how can, and this is what he's doing. He's challenging their preconceived understanding. 
He's challenging their assumption. He says, how can David call his son his Lord? In verse 37, Jesus says that. And so this, this is the point. This passage that you've been reading for a thousand years, that you've based all of your hopes on, you're reading it right, but you're misunderstanding what it means. It means more than you realize. In other words, the promised one isn't just the son of David. The Messiah isn't just a political savior. Jesus is teaching, challenging the scribes, and he's teaching the people that when you put God in a box, you are actually limiting yourself. Now, let me say that again, because here, here's the main point, and this is what I want you to take away. When you put God in a box, you're actually limiting yourself. The son of David, Jesus, didn't come just to defeat Israel's enemies. That's what the people expected. They said, he, they said he's going to come in and defeat the Romans. No, Jesus came to do more than that. He defeated evil. Do you see the difference? We wanted him to come and just defeat the physical enemies. Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm not stopping there. I'm going to defeat evil. The son of David didn't come just to restore Israel. They're like, we just want our kingdom back. God's like, no, I've got something better than that. Jesus came to redeem humanity. The son of David didn't come just to establish an earthly empire. One day, he will rule upon the earth. He came to do more than that. He came to establish a heavenly kingdom. So David's words here that Jesus quotes in Mark chapter 12, are so prophetic. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, again, this is a weird phrase. It's a weird phrase. What God is saying through David is, okay, set on the throne at my right hand. This is a position of of power in the highest heaven. Doesn't get any more powerful than this. I want you to set on the throne ruling as the enemies are being put under your feet. Now, what we would expect is the enemies would be put under the feet, and then he would rule. Do you see? And so this seems backwards, that he's ruling, and the enemies are still active. The son of David, this is what David's communicating. This is what Jesus is reiterating. The son of David, the promised one, is going to rule even as your enemies are still attacking you. Well, that's an important lesson to learn, isn't it? It's like, Lord, I'm saved. I've given my life to you. Why am I still having battles? And this is what God wants to remind you today. It's part of my plan. I know it doesn't always make sense to you, but it's part of my plan that it would take place like this. Rome is still going to be taxing you. They're still going to be arresting you. Some of you, they're going to put oil on you and they're going to burn you in a Colosseum. But I'm still on the throne. I'm still in charge. My plan hasn't changed. My purpose hasn't changed. The outcome hasn't changed. I know it doesn't look like it makes any sense to you, but I promise you exactly what I want to happen will happen. The dominion of the king, the advancement of the kingdom, will manifest itself differently than you expect. Let me say that again. The dominion of the king and the advancement of the kingdom is going to manifest itself differently in your life than you expect. You expected him to come in a palace, but Jesus was born in a manger. You expected him to come as a conquering king, and instead he came as a suffering servant. 
You expected him to take his throne by force, and instead he was given the name that is above every name. How? By submitting to the will of the Father. You expected him to carry a sword. Instead, he carried a cross. You expected him to destroy his enemies. Instead, he prayed for their forgiveness. You expected him to conquer the world in a flash, and instead the kingdom of heaven is like a tiny seed that is planted and grows into the greatest tree in which all the nations find refuge. It manifests itself differently, more progressively, more over time, more subtly than you expect. You see, it's a mistake to make God try to fit into your categories. It's like white Jesus. You familiar with white Jesus? It's the picture of Jesus with flowing Farrah Fawcett hair. I saw somebody the other day that looked like Farrah Fawcett. Like, who's that? Getting old. Farrah Fawcett hair, bright blue eyes, white skin. We are, a lot of us, when we think of Jesus, that's kind of the image. You know, it's one of the most popular images of Jesus. If, if you go to a church maybe a different part of town. You don't have a white Jesus, you got a black Jesus, right? Truth of the matter is, Jesus wasn't white, he wasn't black, he was Middle Eastern. And he was probably about this tall. And he probably had a big old nose and curly hair. Jesus isn't a Republican. Jesus isn't a Democrat. That's what we want, right? We want a Jesus that looks like us, isn't it? We want a Jesus that agrees with everything we agree with. And so we try to make God fit in our boxes. People want a God who's made in their own image. Over the last few years, I have been blown away. Uh, The internet is a, a, a powerful tool, but it's also a place where the devil can do some work. So I have been exposed to some very outlandish ideas about who Jesus is over the last couple of years. And it seems like people are just getting crazier and crazier. Over the last couple of years, I've heard people make the claim that Jesus was gay. And, and they, they point to there's certain little passages that they can point to, and they say, well, see, it's right there. Wasn't married, he was gay. I've heard pe- people say that Jesus was a polygamist. He had multiple wives. And had all sorts of kids. And then, you know, they can go to a couple little passages and point it out and say, see, it's right there, clear as day. I've heard people say of Jesus that he was a racist. In other words, he, he made a mistake. He was sinful. And so if Jesus could be sinful and he could have racism and, and privilege, then maybe all of us have privilege and all of us have. I've seen people say these things with a straight face. Some of them have letters behind their name that suggest they're a biblical scholar. And they can point out different things in the scriptures to back up all these cherry pick, pull things out of context in order to back up whatever they're. I've, I've seen people say that Jesus was a twin. They said Jesus was a twin because when, when he, they res, it wasn't Jesus' resurrected body that the disciples saw. It was his twin, kind of like the movie The Prestige. Have you ever seen that? I just ruined the movie for some of y'all, and I'm sorry. But this is what people do. They, they want to make a Jesus in their own image. And they, they want to pigeonhole, put Jesus in a box to back up their agenda. Why? Because Jesus is the most influential person who's ever lived. 
And because he's the most influential person that ever lived, then, then you would assume that he's got things right. And so if I can somehow co-opt the authority of Jesus to back up my agenda, it validates how I believe. It validates how I live. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. Western Christianity wants, and I'm, I'm, let me just say this, okay? I totally chickened out first service of saying what I'm about to say, okay? And I'm going to explain I'm going to explain. You'll understand in a second. First of all, I've been convicted about this this last week, okay? So I do not, I am, I am still wrestling with this, but I want to bring it to your attention. I want you thinking about it. But I was going to talk about this first service, and there were these kids that came in, and they were wearing, I'm going to talk to you about Disney for a second. They were wearing Disney clothes, okay? And they, I mean, and so I just couldn't bring myself to talk about Disney with them wearing, I mean, they, it was like Mickey Mouse all over them, Okay? So I totally copped out. I did not talk about this first service. So uh, just understand, I'm still wrestling with this. But this last week, uh, there was a leaked video. Did any any of y'all see this leaked video from the executives of Disney? So these are people that have influence and authority in Disney. And so it was like an internal Zoom call. It was leaked. Now, in the Zoom call, it was in response to a bill that's going on in Florida, and they're they're talking about all this stuff. And so in the Zoom call, it, it becomes clear they openly admit in this Zoom call that they have progressive messaging in their movies and cartoons in order to indoctrinate children. And that they are, they are putting things everywhere they can. This was the language that they used. We're putting it everywhere we can. And, I, and one of the executives said, I'm surprised that my boss allowed me to do this. That's what they said. And so I got to thinking about it, and I'm convicted about it. My wife was talking about it. I sent her the link to the video, and she says, this is going to make me hate Disney. But it got me thinking about it. Are my kids, is their morality, is it more formed by biblical stories or Disney stories? Because here's the truth. All these, all these Disney stories, they're so well done, and they're so entertaining but they all have a message. That's the point of all of them. There's a message. It's a moral message. They're modern-day parables. So are my kids, are they more informed morally by the Scriptures or by Disney? Do they know better Aladdin or Abraham? Do they know better um, Elsa and Anna or Mary and Martha? Do they know better the Lion King or Christ the King? And this is what we say, it's okay, because it, the, the messaging in Disney is wholesome, right? That's what we say, it's, it's, it's wholesome. Is it, though? You know, especially in the last few years, is it, really? Or is this just another box that we're trying to fit Jesus in? You see how it works? It's kind of like, okay, well, this is, this is the... This is the morality of the day, so I'm going to try and make Jesus fit the morality of the day instead of trying to form our morality and our ethics and our worldview by who Jesus is. Here's the problem with Disney, Jesus. Here's, here's the problem with any God that you stick in a box. That Jesus is not setting in power at the right hand of God. He is not enthroned in heaven. He cannot answer your prayers. He cannot guide you down the path of righteousness. He cannot save your soul. He cannot deliver you from the enemies. He cannot lead you into a heavenly kingdom. He can't. He's powerless. 
Because that God is limited by your imagination. That God is limited by your preferences. That God is limited by your agenda. That is a God in your own image. What power do you have personally to change this world? You don't have much, do you? That's as much power as that God has. But the Christ of the Bible, the promised one that was spoken of to David a thousand years before Jesus was born, the, 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 the root of Jesse that Isaiah spoke about 600 years before Jesus was born, that, that promised son that was spoken to Mary about, who is going to be this wonderful counselor and mighty God, that God is the only God who can answer your prayers. He is fully God and fully man. You see, here's the thing. Jesus transcends your categories. Jesus is bigger than your boxes. And so it's a mistake. He's fully God and he's fully man. How does that make sense? You understand? He's bigger than we can even understand. The Bible says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above yours. I don't know about you, but if there's a God that I can fit in a little box, I don't want to worship that God. That God has no power. He has no authority. He can't save. He's the lion and the lamb. He's David's son and David's Lord. And he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. You see, he breaks all of our categories. You you put this expectation on God of this is how God is, this is how God operates, this is what God does, and all of a sudden you have limited who God is. In that moment, you have limited who God is, and you have limited what he can do in your life. It's a mistake. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Jesus is saying, God is bigger than your categories. You've got a misunderstanding. Here, re-examine. Verify the identity of the Messiah. The large crowd was listening to him with delight. So this is what we see. Jesus puts the scribes in their place, and then there's a large crowd of people, and they're like, yeah, Jesus, get them. Right? Because they don't. The, the scribes are kind of the elite, and us common people, we tend to not like the elite, right? Because uh, we, we tend to put people in boxes and categorize people before we get to know them, don't we? And so we just assume like all elite people are arrogant, all people that have authority, that they're no good for anything. And so all the, all the common people are like, yeah, Jesus, go get them, put them in their place, shut them up. And so they were so proud and so excited. But just a few days later, many in the same crowd who were cheering for Jesus at the debate, just on a few days later on Friday, they're cheering for Jesus to be crucified. They turned on the Lord. Why? Because he didn't match their preconceived notions. He didn't match their assumptions. They were expecting the son of, they're looking at Jesus, they're like, okay, this is the man. He walks on water, he feeds 5,000 with five loaves, he casts out demons, he raises people from that. Obviously, this is the son of David. He puts the scribes in their place. This is the man. Yeah, way to go, Jesus. But then on Friday, they saw Jesus standing beside Pilate. He'd been arrested, and he'd been beaten, and he was bloody. There was a crown of thorns on his head. 
And they looked at this bloody, beaten Jesus, big black eye, broken nose. He's all, you know, hunched over. He's wearing, you know, just rags at this point. And they looked at Jesus and they said, well, he can't be the son of David. The Messiah doesn't look like that. The Messiah is not bloody. What are we talking about? The, the Messiah doesn't wear a crown of thorns. He, he wears a golden crown. The, the Messiah isn't under the, the authority of the Romans. The, the Messiah puts the Romans under his feet. This is all backwards. That We thought that this was the Messiah. We hoped it, but no, nah, he can't. So because he's not what I wanted him to be, because he doesn't match my assumptions, he can go to hell. Crucify him. Do away with him. That's what we do. The moment you want to put God in a box and say, this is who God is and this is how God operates, that's when you set yourself up to hate God. This is what happens when we insist on making Jesus fit our categories, when we insist on making Jesus fit our assumptions. Eventually, when he refuses to fit in your little neat boxes, you will hate him, and you'll want to get him out of your life. Here's a statement that breaks my heart. I wouldn't want to worship a God who. You ever heard people say that? I wouldn't want to worship a God who sends people to hell. I wouldn't want to worship a God who says X, Y, and Z is a sin. I wouldn't want to worship a God who does this or who does that or who who doesn't do this or who doesn't do that. You ever heard that statement? In other words, I have this expectation of who God is supposed to be, and if he doesn't fit those expectations, I don't want anything to do with him. Breaks my heart. I don't want a God who's going to take Disney Plus away from me. We're still wrestling with this, you know. (laughs) Here's the truth, my friends. It doesn't matter what you want. The world's not going to tell you this. It doesn't matter what your preferences are. It doesn't matter what your assumptions are. It doesn't matter what you like or you don't like. It does not change the fact that God is God and you are not. It does not change the fact that one day you will stand before him in judgment. God is not under judgment. You are. God does not have to give an answer to us. We have to give an answer to God. Don't try and squeeze God in your box. He doesn't fit. And you're doing a disservice to yourself. This is what I want to encourage you to do. Here's the remedy. Throw all of your assumptions out the window. All your preconceived notions about who Jesus is and how he operates. Try and forget the culture that you live in. Open the scriptures, God's word, and pray to the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the key to all this. God spoke to David. How? By the Holy Spirit. God promised Isaiah, that the Holy Spirit will work this out. It was the Holy Spirit that came upon Mary to bring Jesus into this world. It was the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus up from the grave. And the Bible says the same Spirit that raised Christ from the grave is living in us. These are the Holy Spirit's words. And so this is what we do. We open the Scriptures. We put all of our assumptions aside. We open the Scriptures and we say, Holy Spirit, teach me who you are, even if it breaks my heart. 
Even if it flips my world upside down, even if I have to change everything about myself, show me who you are. Because friends, there is no one wiser. There was no one more powerful. There was no one more loving. There is no one more fair. There is no one more glorious. There is no one more good than the God of this Bible. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us so much that you go out of your way to reveal yourself to us. Thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins and to show us what the truth is. And so, Lord, we come today asking you that you will break our heart for the things that break yours, that you will search us and know us and see if there's any wicked way in us, that you'll cleanse us of our sins, that you'll, you'll free us from all of our preconceived notions of how this world works and how you're supposed to operate, and we'll just let you be God in our life, and that we'll surrender to you completely so that we can live in a place of peace and prosperity that only you can bring us into, only you can deliver on. Help us to submit as you, as our king. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. This is a time of invitation, a time of celebration, a time of prayer, a time of remembrance. And so we sing a song during this, if you're new with us. And if you're carrying any burden whatsoever, you can come and just kneel at this altar and one of our prayer warriors will pray over you. A lot of you come in here today and just life hasn't lived up to your expectations. And I got great news for you. When they were nailing Jesus to the cross, he was hanging there naked. And people were laughing at him and spitting on him and insulting him. Many of the people, many of his disciples, they thought it was all over, that all hope was lost. But three days later, After a silent Saturday, Jesus bust up out of that tomb. And this is what he proved. In Jesus' name, there's always hope. In Jesus' name, things are never too far gone. And so if you're here today and you're carrying a heavy burden, if you're here today and you're far from God, will you please come and talk to me? Let me pray with you. Let me tell you about your next steps. Let me tell you, if if you're not connected to Jesus, let me tell you how you can make the best decision in your life. We have emblems on either side of the stage. They represent the body and blood of Christ. They represent the victory that we have in Christ that he whispered about thousands of years ago that he carried out in Jesus Christ, raised him from the grave, and he promises he's coming back. So be reminded of his body, his blood, his victory. As we sing this song, come.